This week on the show, we have the birth of Unix, an article from Clara Systems for you, help request for the three big Lumina items, FreeBSD 13 running on the ThinkPad G460S, HardenBSD's January 2022 status report, OpenSense 22.1, the observant owl release, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 442, Birthing Unix, recorded on the 9th of February 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow for various perks like ad-free episodes or jumping the queue in our feedback and questions section a little bit. So that might be interesting to you. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Uh, welcome. We have, as always, compiled a nice episode for you with headlines. And this is the first, which starts, uh, is also the namesake here for this episode, the birth of Unix over at Clara Systems. They keep blogging and writing, so we're happy to cover these. And the uh, story is, of course, where Unix came from. And they start off with, over the past year, we've published a number of articles about the early history of BSD and FreeBSD, many of which we covered here on the uh, show. Today, we are going to um, where it's all started. We are delving back to the birth of Unix. Uh, you know, emphasis added by myself. So <laughs> before we dive into our story, remember to check some of the other articles. So they linked all the previous ones about the Unix uh, USL lawsuits, the early days of FreeBSD, BSD and TCP IP and others so that you can, you know, have them all in one place. And if you miss one, then you have it uh, right there. Okay, let's begin. In his 1999 book, In the Beginning Was the Command Line, Neil Stevenson said the following about Unix, quote, Windows 95 and Mac OS are products contrived by engineers in the service of specific companies. Unix, by contrast, is not so much a product as it is a painstakingly compiled oral history of the hacker subculture. It is our Gilgamesh epic. Oh, wow. Unquote. Okay, yeah, so this is the Gilgamesh epic. Yes, okay. And in the beginning was Multics. Unix has its roots in an earlier project named Multics, or uh, for the people who don't like abbreviations, Multiplexed Information and Computing Service, which was started uh, in 1957, to be exact. Uh, 56, sorry. Um, the project was a joint collaboration between AT&T, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the MIT, and General Electric GE, with a goal of creating an interactive time-sharing system. This was a big departure from the previous punch card-based systems, the Multics system allowed you to enter commands with a keyboard and then have the results printed out right away, right above you, on a teletype printer. So that's that was new and revolutionary back then. The project was worked on by Ken Thompson, Dennis Ritchie, and other big names. So you probably heard the two names before in the Unix space. To give you some idea how big an advance this was, let's take a quick look at how punch cards uh or how punch card based computers worked. To write a program in Fortran, for example, you'd have to punch holes in a card. Each card was about the size of an index card, but a little bit wider because it has 80 columns. So 80 columns that survived till today. So, but let's yeah, still talk have about that. that later. It's there. Yeah. <laughs> Each of these 80. Great standard. Yeah, that definitely. So each of these 80 columns stood for a single character. 
To write your program, you would punch holes in these columns to correspond to the character you wanted to use. Each punch card represents one line of Fortran code. So if you had a thousand line program, you would have thousand cards, right? Okay. As this wasn't bad enough, there was no instant feedback to let you know if you made a mistake. Instead, you had to hand the stack of cards that represented your program to the people that ran the computer systems. According to Brian Koenigham of C and Arc fame, uh, and a while later, back would come your results very often, where it's just something like there was a syntax error somewhere, and you had to find the cards that were wrong, replace them with new cards that were right, and repeat the process, but with a very, very long latency that could be often measured in hours or sometimes even days. Ooh, okay. So using this punch card system to print a thesis was no picnic, as Koenigan explains. There's a link to a further article. And so the thesis was basically three boxes of cards, 6,000 cards in each box, <laughs> probably weighed 12 pounds, like five kilograms. And so you take these three boxes, 1,000 cards, of which the first half of the first box was the program, and then the remaining 5,000 cards was the thesis. <laughs> and you would take those three boxes and you would hand them to the operator. And then an hour or two or three later, uh, back would come your printed version of a thesis again. And you just keep iterating until it was good enough. And little side note, hopefully you didn't uh, drop them on the, you know, pavement floor and you had mixed it all together. And so no way out. No, no. Um, back to the article. Unfortunately, the Multics project was canceled after five years. The project has been hugely ambitious and fell behind schedule. The AT&T managers decided to end the project while they were ahead. This decision caused the managers of Bell Labs to stop any further work on computer operating systems. This left many researchers very unhappy. Oh, wow. The rest is not history because there's more. Uh, <laughs> then they say in an, uh, another title here, then came space, kinda. Even though their bosses had put an end to all operating system projects, Thompson and Ritchie continued to explore the idea of what an operating system should look like uh, with other colleagues. During this time, Thompson wrote a computer game entitled Space Travel. According to Koenigan, you had a complete accurate model of the solar system and you could navigate your little rocket around the solar system and land on various things. So you can land on one of the moons of Jupiter or something like that. Originally, some Thompson, Thompson wrote the game to run on a GE654 mainframe computers from like General Electric, which was the same computer that Multics was written on. The problem was that this made the game expensive to play, about $75 a game for the CPU time. Ooh. Thompson started searching for a cheaper alternative. He finally found that in the form of a digital equipment corporation, PDP-7 Mini Computer. The PDP-7 was outdated, but it was available. So Thompson set to work porting space travel to the new computer. And then there's a section about uh, patents, but we uh, leave that up to you because we think this article is interesting enough to read on your own. Oh yeah, it's a good start into the Unix history and how it all started and may have come to a sudden end because managers yeah and if you want to use learn more there's other clara articles which have been really good there's also a, a book by brian kerningen that he wrote as sort of a memoir but also a memoir of unix it's really interesting it's a great source for information oh yeah uh and so I, for some people it's like ah, why should i read all this history stuff it's kind of important because 80 column characters and terminals are still around so you wonder where this came from and this is exactly that all right next up we have a, a follow-up post that's titled help requested for the three big items for lumina um and this is by our producer jt 
uh, who gets to put his own articles high on the show. Uh, in this post, I mentioned some of the major work that is on the roadmap for Lumina, and I finally made the time to expand on this a little more. In this post, I'm going to cover three of the big ticket items I need help with. Before I get into that, a few points worth mentioning. C++ Qt experience is a definite requirement. It's not that I have anything against Python or Go, but Lumina is written in C++ and Qt, so that's what you'll need to know. Along with that, you'll need to be willing to submit your code contributions under a BSD3 clause license. Um, CMake conversion. So right now there are a bunch of build issues on various Linux OSs because of some weird interaction between using QMake with the dot profiles and building them with Make. While Qt6 is moving away from QMake and going to CMake because of Qt drama and the fully open version of Qt6 probably being the LTS with 6.1, this is not an immediate need. Also, even after Qt 6.1 is released, we can technically keep using Qt 5 for quite a while until it's EOL. However, it would be nice to have this as a build option to help distro and OS packages build Lumina with less headache, which would probably increase its uh, footprint. Uh, I can't believe I just implied CMake would be less of a headache. Where have I gone in life? Lol. <laughs> JT. Uh, Lumina FM rewrite. Uh, in our prior posts, the new file manager will need to function using a Q file system class. Beyond that, there are only a few definite needs for a new, for a new FM uh, for Lumina. So otherwise there's a clean slate for us to design from. Aside from the normal design of a split design with folders in a pane on the left and the browser on the right, I'm open to ideas. That being said, we don't be doing Miller columns. If you know what that is, this might be the perfect project for you. Uh, if you want that, use macOS. Some other main needs are a toggleable UI panel that would include a slider for accessing ZFS snapshots. This is, in my opinion, one of the killer features that Lumina offers that no one else does. As a result, this is an absolute requirement. The right-click menu needs to be written in a way that is easily extensible for actions. Obviously, the default would include all the normal ones, uh, open, close, cut, copy, paste, new directory, uh, open terminal here. However, I'd like to make an additional section like we currently have for additional actions, but to create new ones in a subdrawer in the sources so it'd be possible to have to be as easy as adding a new C and H file into the sources and linking them into the FM code. And third up, currently Lumina displays the progressive operations in the desktop panel. I'd prefer to bring that into the main FM itself as a toggleable panel with the option to enable desktop notifications if the user desires. One thing that I liked in Lumina is its customization. You can set it up the way you'd like. I'd like to take the oddly missing feature in most file managers and extend that into Lumina FM as well. I'd like to have a configuration system where panels can be enabled, disabled based on user wishes. This is easy enough to do uh, with simply checking a config file when starting the file manager to see if a user has certain features enables. If a user doesn't want the directory panel to show easy, just disable it in a config file. Lastly, there are a few features I've always wanted in a file manager that I've not seen done. And I'm not sure if people would like it. So they're going to be some of these user toggleable features. In the left panel where directories are shown, also display the folder data size. That's pretty cool. That way, someone doesn't have to right click and select properties to prevent system strain. I'd like to say we allow a user to set an upper limit, say 500 megabytes. And if the folder size is above that, it'll just show greater than 500 megabytes. Um, if you're having a hard time grasping what I mean, imagine the output of du-sh star for each directory in a folder uh, that you're sitting in being displayed uh, in the system tree panel. Lumina currently doesn't have thumbnails, 
They're re doesn't save the thumbnails. They regenerate every time you enter a directory if they're not in the in RAM. Oh, that must be annoying on big files, actually. Mm -hmm. I'd like to enable saving this, but with multiple options, first being classic method of saving these in the home directory slash dot somewhere. I personally hate that this is done because my user folder shouldn't be a storage place for thumbnails. Um, thumbnails should be where the files are located. After all, there's no reason each user should have to generate uh, thumbnails for images, vid video on a NAS. But since that is what most people are used to, this should be an option they can choose. The second option is to create a dot directory uh, where they can be stored. That way they are rendered once, saved and always available in that folder. Move the folder, no problem. Thumbnails get moved as well, meaning they never have to be rendered again. Third option is to keep the current in place of Lumina, not saving thumbnails on memory in memory. Uh, other than in memory, though this change just to slash temp, so it's easier to code wise considering the other two options. A longer term feature I'd love to have is something similar to SLOOKUP based into the file manager itself for searching, again, user toggleable. Lumina 2.0 window manager. This is well outside my capabilities, writes JT, uh, but I do have a secret plan that I'll explain in a bit. Mm, okay, we are ready for secrets. Ken started this work, and in some ways the window manager does work. You can start it and you can load windows, but there are a bunch of bugs and lots of things not completed. I haven't looked at this code since probably late 2018, so I'm a little fuzzy on what state it is in. I do remember Ken saying that it was only a few months away from being done, but at that time he was working on it for a couple hours a day. So let's guesstimate 100 to 250 hours of effort left. Ideally, I could convince him to finish it so someone else doesn't have the initial uphill battle of figuring out what he finished and what still needs to be worked on. So here we are at my secret plan. Okay, secret 10, don't tell Ken. Um, however, by reading further, you'll have to promise that, and listening further, you'll have to promise that you will keep the secret as well. This is between you and me and nobody else, Benedict. No, okay. Oh, and the internet, and the internet. Okay, it's fine. I've turned sponsorships on for the Lumina project. All of the money that comes in is being set aside and will continue to grow until such time as there's enough money to actually hire someone to do this work. Since Ken started it, he's the logical choice, but with work and family life, that might not be possible. However, I'm sure if the number becomes decent enough, I can convince his wife to convince him to do it. Remember, happy wife, happy life. However, I can't convince his wife then at least have the option to hire someone else to do the work, or someone could just be a wonderful human and an awesome open source developer and be interested in tackling a tough challenge. So if you've got time and would like to help out, reach out and let me know. I would really like to make some progress on these items and it's going to take some outside help. And now I get the special part because JT is the producer of, the, of art, this podcast. Uh, special BSD Now segment for Tom Jones to read on air in episode 442, I should have swapped these into different episodes. That would have been really funny. I, Tom Jones, do hereby apologize and consent to giving to everyone giving me, Tom Jones, a hard time when they see me because I didn't know or forget, forgot that I knew that JT was the current developer of Lumina. Furthermore, as penance, I also owe JT and the show listeners some BSD poetry in a future BSD Now episode. And then there is a comment... JT, while Tom reads this on there, and it's a Mr. Burns laughing. I think I think I have a response to this, um, and I think maybe in the best form would be a poem. Uh, and so I have here uh, "Addressed to the Toothache" uh, by Robert Burns. My curse upon your venom stang that shoots my tortured gums along, and through my lugs gives many a twang with gnawing vengeance, tears my nerves with bitter pang like racking engines. 
When fevers burn or ague freezes, rheumatics gnaw or colic squeezes, our neighbor's apathy, our neighbor's sympathy may ease us with pity and moan. But thee, thou hell of a disease, I mocks are grown. I do in my beard the slavers trickle, I throw the wee stools o'er their mickle, as round the fire the kiglets kickle to see me loop, while raven mad I wish a heckle were in their dupe. Oh, ah, the numerous human duel, ill-hearsed daft bargains, cutty stools, or worthy friends rake in the mules, sad seat to see. The tricks o' knaves, or fash, o' fools, thou bear'st the gee. Where'er that place be priests call hell, whence a tones of miseries yell, and raked plagues in their numbers tell, in dreadful raw, thou toothache surely bear'st the bell among them all. O thou grim mischief-making chill, that gars the notes of discord squill, till daft mankind dance a reel in gore a shoe thick, get ah the faces of Scotland wheel a two months too thick. All right, let's move on to our news roundup this week. We have an article about FreeBSD 13 on ThinkPad T460S. And this starts with, for some reasons, uh, the author here decided to use FreeBSD on his laptop. Not bad idea in my case. Several times uh, they have tried in the last few years. Several times they've stopped after the first issue that felt was a sign of it that not being built for him or them. Okay. This time they'll go for at least a whole month of using it. Okay. So they can really decide if they keep using it or switch back to OpenBSD. So here's a section about preparing the installation media that's pretty much boiling down to do SDD, the ISO image, uh, the memstick image, the mini memstick image in that uh, goes to RDS D2C with a block size of one megabytes. Okay, this is fairly done, uh, done on OpenBSD and replace the OF device reference with the proper one, not your main hard disk, but the one that uh, <laughs> points to your <laughs> your device that you want to use to boot uh, the new laptop from. Restart the laptop and boot from the USB stick using the F12 on the T460 to select the boot uh, method. Okay, then the installation of FreeBSD. We've covered this many times on the show. Any specific things about this laptop here? They use the French accent keys because that's what they use. Uh, perfectly fine to switch to something else. They listed what options they selected and what not selected. So no base debug or kernel debug uh, parts, and that's all fine. They partitioned the disk using the auto ZFS option and enabled root encryption because that's there, it's usable, and why not have that on a laptop? Definitely good to have. Network access via EM0, no wireless interface available, uh, and the rest is basically straightforward. Okay. Then the first boot. Uh, before being able to boot the system, the ZFS encryption passphrase is required. Yes, give that. Uh, so that the keyboard uses a US layout at this point. Ah, yes, here we come into problems with the French exit key keyboard layout they selected. Um, okay, and then one needs to learn how to type the passphrase using it if your keys are somewhere different from the US keyboard. Uh, I think they at one point wanted to make that uh, ch changeable or picking that the keyboard layout is selected, but I don't think that hasn't progressed much. Anyway, uh, the prompt login as root and continue further configuration. Okay, so the password was uh, <laughs> properly typed and installed a few console tools to be more comfy while continuing the configuration. So this is not 
uh, too particular to, towards this laptop, but more towards this user. Uh, they installed Duas program, Tmux, Vim, and W3M. They chose to start Tmux and configure a dual pane. Uh, one of the handbook, uh, one with the handbook and the one with the shell. Oh, good idea so that you can always read and compare what the shell tells you. Uh, they also split the shell pane in two to also have a look at the manual. Even better, in the case they needed to do more than what's written in the handbook. Oh yeah, that's quite good. So W3M, you go to your local uh, directory where the handbook is stored in the HTML form. That's why we do this. And security patches, oh, you should do those. Yes, they could have happened since the release was done. That's FreeBSD update fetch and FreeBSD update installed. You can also put this in one command. Add an automatic check in the cron tab for that. So that checks if there is something new, then it will download that as the next uh, cron cycle starts. Tell FreeBSD where to send all emails and configure an MTA. Uh, so that's uh, where Roots mail should go to. And uh, they installed SSMTP, excellent choice. That's what I also use, this uh, simple SMTP server that's only allowed to do sending, not receiving. So that's only outbound mail. So for the system status messages like that, and uh, they show how to configure that. No, they don't show just the files they need to enter, but I think there are plenty of how-tos out there for SSMTP uh, to show you that. Then they modify the packages repository, get more recent updates. This is in your uh, user local etc package slash repos slash freebsd.conf. There you switch from um, fairly sure from well quarterly to latest and then run package update to pull that down. Now back to the ThinkPad. Uh, they want the ACPI extras. So you echo ACPI underscore IBM underscore load equals yes to the bootloader conf or edit that directly. And then you do KLD load ACPI underscore IBM for the current session. In the future, when you boot, then it will have this auto loaded. Maybe it does already because um, the, uh, the system will detect what kind of devices are connected, but never, uh, never a problem if you added this line and it's there twice. Then you check uh, if the lab can go to sleep. Yes, good to know. Uh, and wake up also, you, you type ZZZ, that turns the laptop off. Power light is blinking, that's good. Power the laptop on, screen remains blank. Blindly issue reboot, the laptop reboots properly. The issue is probably the graphics card. Let's configure X Windows system that may explain why it comes first in the handbook. Oh yeah. <laughs> Configure the X-Windows system is done using package install X-Org. Then they added his or her user to the video group using PW group mod, and then installed the DRM drivers for this machine and uh, add the KLD list for that specific thing to rc.conf. Uh, then drivers can be loaded manually, but let's reboot to check everything applies properly. On reboot, KLD stat shows that everything is loaded. Let's try to set the laptop to sleep and wake up again. This time, the shell is properly back. Excellent. Okay, so with these tweaks, you can make the laptop asleep and wake up again. Using startx as root switches to xorg with the US keyboard layout. So let's configure a French keyboard there. Uh, so that's also provided for the people who want to follow along. Then they noticed that they had let FreeBSD use the mode setting driver. Uh, xword would die on the resume. So they configured the Intel driver and the laptop would resume properly in X. They also showed the configuration sections for that. Then they configured uh, XDM. So without running start X each time. So they want to run the display manager and they also 
detail what to do there. Wireless config is also shown. That's for the RTWN0, the Broadcom BCM4356. That's built in. Is it? Ah, no, it's a it's a USB dongle they had to use so because apparently this is not recognized. Mm. Okay. But they seem to have wireless going. Then sound, everything is configured and works out of the box, they say. Uh, Bluetooth is also recognized, uh, but don't use it. So it's just a check if it's available or detected. Then they make some changes to the user environment. That's more for, you know, comfort and ease of typing, and ease of use with French language settings and stuff. Um, is there anything more laptop specific that we have here? Suspending the laptop from XFCE, that's quite good. Uh, There's personal thoughts at the bottom. Oh yeah, here we go. So after all said and done, uh, they wanted to go out on their comfort zone using an OS they haven't used since the early 2000s. Oh yeah, <laughs> a couple of things have changed since then. The last FreeBSD they used was probably one from the 4.x series. Ooh. Since then, they got used to OpenBSD as a way of doing things. So they're obviously biased, but they also were ready to be impressed. Okay, well, not so bad that they got this far. Uh, what they liked, using FreeBSD as a workstation with XORG feels smooth. Just like Windows, Linux, or macOS, the Windows pops up really quick and the mouse feels super responsive and there's no lag in hogware like Firefox when switching tabs. Things like GIMP or LibreOffice take a few seconds to launch, but as far as they can tell, those react the same way no matter the OS you use. Okay. So all in all, positive results. Then there's a section on what they disliked. Uh, for example, no wireless driver for the Broadcom network chip. Okay. This means they're stuck with the 2.4 gigahertz 802.11n and that particular Broadcom card can achieve uh, the AC connection straight from the hardware. Yeah, people are working on that. And so they yeah, have a couple of comments which are mostly positive and constructive. And so uh, at the bottom is what they learned from that whole experience. Using FreeBSD as a workstation helped them confirm their OpenBSD servers were not slow at all. <laughs> they could transfer files from a Celeron J4125 at 700 megabits per second using HTTPS and NFS. Uh, all their scripts are written to run using OpenBSD's KSH. On a few Linux boxes they have, they are also run using Bash, but they thought they were POSIX compliant. Using them with FreeBSD's SH proved them uh, they were wrong. Some of them would not run because the syntax was not acceptable. Hmm. Uh, uh, they have to review them to make them more POSIX compliant. Yes, for exactly these purposes. FreeBSD allowed them to solve some issues with their Nextcloud instance. There are still weird bugs or things happening, but it seems to be due to the Nextcloud client rather than the server configuration. They would also verify that the errors were not due to the HDBD or RelayD configuration. Okay, see, on the operating system, it's a good test to see if the uh, OpenBSD stuff works. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that their shell scripts weren't actually portable. It was really cool. I liked as well, they discussed a bit more and we skipped it, um, issues with just having a different locale and layout. Ah, yes. And not being applied well over the system. Yeah. That... Which is really interesting because I, I just use the US layout for everything because <laughs> yeah. it's what I'm used to. So yeah, they say that uh, it was an interesting one month, one month long experiment. Some things were great, some less, but they've learned much. So thank you, FreeBSD. Hey, we thank you for this nice uh, write-up. Cool. Next up, we have the hardened BSD January 2022 status report. And this is coming from Sean Webb. And Sean writes, the first month of the year started strong. So I'm going to get right into it in base. FreeBSD landed their virtual dynamic shared object, VDSO, late last year. 
I brought those changes into 14 current and subsequently 13 stable. I ensured that VDSO's user land mapping was still randomized as it stands today. VDSO is active on AMD64, but not ARM64. I tested to make sure that both scenarios still work by testing the development uh, Thunder X1. Uh, in the back of the VDSO, in, in the back port of the VDSO work to 13 stable, I introduced a single character typo. I chased that down, squashing the bug. FreeBSD's package work has advanced quite a bit. Our package base integration didn't follow those advancements, so I belatedly fixed that. This was needed for work sponsored by Blackhawk Nest Inc. Loic, which I, th I think is a person, uh, Loic made it so that the kernel's config file isn't embedded in the kernel. Uh, Sean made it so that we apply a separate delta for the RTLD upon image activation time. Previously, we would apply the same delta we use for the regular MMAP calls. Reusing the MMAP delta placed the RTL, RTL, RTLD right next to the other dependent shared objects. As the RTLD contains high value targets, applying a separate delta helps protect those targets. I identified a problem with the OpenSSH port and base whereby the in-app SFTP service would crash when a Windows client attempted to connect. I resolved that by fixing a kernel check on the process control KPI. FreeBSD introduced a new security.bsd.allow underscore ptrace sysctl node and its corresponding integration code. When PAX hardening is set in the kernel, it's set by default, the sysctl node will be set to zero. CV, CV 2021-4034 came out. I took inspiration from OpenBSD's general mitigation of checking the argc equals zero in the kernel before allowing exec CVE uh, to complete. The implementation of the argc check differs between FreeBSD and HardenBSD. FreeBSD's implementation occurs much sooner in the code path, whereas my implementation occurs after the sysentvec specified SV copyout strings function pointer is called. Should there be a weird SV copy out strings implementation, our argc check will be more resilient than the FreeBSD check. The old Berkeley database implementation requires downstream consumers to reference a function pointer in a contextual structure returned and filled out by dbopen. These function pointers uh, point to uninstrumented functions in libc, thus when CFI iCall scheme is applied, applications attempting to call those functions will be killed by sigil by CFI. I spent around 20 hours this month on cross DSO CFI, the longest amount of time, um, a, a longest amount of time spent in a while. Identified some chicken and egg scenarios, especially resolving with DL Open Dance in libc and RTLD. The cross DSO CFI runtime intercepts calls to DL Open in order to add the shared objects memory to the CFI allow list. Um, there also updates in ports. So like, which has come up twice, so I do think it's a person. A hardened multimedia FFmpeg port. Uh, I fixed the MISC CBIOS port. Loic removed an unneeded patch in security Osiris. I disabled dtrace option for a few ports. Um, dtrace support is broken when it, using a more complete LLVM compiler toolchain. I need to a, file a bug. Report in upstream. Fixed uh, OpenJDK. Loic fixed uh, devil AR64 non-elf GCC ports. And they disabled PAX and protect for the MongoD ports. And some infrastructure work on hardened BSD. All of hardened BSD build infrastructure is graciously hosted by my employer, Black Hawk Nest Inc. Due to COVID-19, we are still working remotely 99.9% .9 of the time, myself included. 
The 27th of this month was the first time in around three months since I'd been in the office. With my focus being on the development side, I've not taken time to set up proper network and system monitoring solutions. Some servers are experiencing hardware failures, but mostly just dead drives. Starting uh, 2nd of February 2022, I plan to go to the office at least twice per week. Uh, I ordered replacement drives and will install them as soon as they arrive. The server hit the hardest is the 12 stable nightly build server, which uh, is at the point where I need to rebuild with new drives, performing a fresh install and reconfiguration. I plan to avert some development time towards infrastructure maintenance in February, setting up infrastructure and monitoring solution. I'd like to get us to the point where we can be anticipatory with our infrastructure's needs rather than reactionary. In conclusion, HardenBSD has had a very busy and productive January. Yeah, sounds really productive, actually. Uh, we've made several substantial improvements. The project would not be possible without the generous and greatly appreciated contributions of the community. The HardenBSD team and I are grateful for the opportunity to serve you. That was a really cool update from HardenBSD. It's good to see they're doing lots. Yeah, seems like uh, it's good to know from projects that they have uh, progressed and these status reports help us and the users to see what's going on and help if uh, help is desired and I guess is needed. It's really funny as well to see like all these people set up being like, oh yeah, I, uh, I, I actually depended on being able to sit at the console of this computer and I cannot manage it remotely. Yeah, oops. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, so another thing in the same vein is the OpenSense 22.1 Observant Owl release. So that's the name for it. And they say in their message, hi there, for more than seven years now, OpenSense is driving innovation through modularizing and hardening the open source firewall with simple and reliable firmware upgrades, multi-language support, fast adoption of upstream software updates, as well as clear and stable two-class BSD licensing. 22.1, nicknamed Observant Owl, features the upgrade to FreeBSD 13, switch to logging supporting RFC 5424 with severity filtering, improved tunable sysctl value integration, faster boot sequence and interface initiation, as well as dynamic IPv6 host alias support amongst others. On the flip side, major operating system changes bear risk of regression and feature removal, like no longer supporting insecure cryptography in the kernel for IPsec and switching the Realtek vendor driver back to its FreeBSD counterpart, which does not yet support newer 2.5 gig uh, models or Jeep models. Circular logging support has also been removed. Make sure to read the known issues and limitations below this message before attempting to upgrade. Yes, again, this is a major release. You might break things in spectacular ways. Make backups first and follow the instructions. Uh, they provide download links and a full list of patch notes since the last version, which is 21.7.7. .7, and you better start reading the known issues at the bottom to have a smooth ride upgrading to this newer release. Okay, then we've collected some beastie bits for you. The first is a YouTube video from LCA 2022, the early days of Unix at Bell Labs, Brian Koenigam, which nicely ties into our opening article. And so that you can watch there from the conference. Uh, then we have the Basti BSD user survey for you. They want to get to know their users a little bit more. So they provided a Google form that you can fill out to give feedback to the project. Uh, about your use of best TBSD, what people should work on and what your ideas are. Yep. And then next up, we have a post on, on Reddit slash r slash BSD, the smallest desktop of the day with a Raspberry Pi 400 running OpenBSD 7.0. And we just have some hardware info, um, but not much else. It looks really cool. Uh, and then we have some very sad news from uh, BSD CAN. Um, so BSD CAN 2022 online only. Hello. Despite earlier hopes, BSD CAN 2022 will be online only. 
we will not be meeting in Ottawa this year. I know this is disappointing, but the current situation is not promising. I would rather cancel now than not and not now than have everyone book travel and then have to cancel in a few months. I'm not sure about travel re restrictions or even about meeting in large groups. With all that, let's go online for 2022. The review of the accepted proposals will begin soon. It was delayed until this go-no-go -no -go decision was reached. I expect the announcement of the accepted talks will be later than the scheduled 19th of February because of that. Um, it's from Dan. Yeah, so for the people who haven't read the webpage yet, I think they did updates there as well. Uh, so BUSD CAN will not be in person. It will be online again. But nevertheless, it's a conference that's happening and people should definitely attend and submit. Oh, they can they still submit talks? Yeah, um, I think the CFP closed on Monday. Oh, okay. A bit late, but then you have to wait what they decided to put on the schedule. Yeah, and then next up, we have a, a video Q&A from Joshua Stein. Um, Joshua Stein's an OpenBSD developer and he works on, is the author of Pushover. And he's been doing a, a series uh, where he's been doing application development on macOS System 6 on a classic Macintosh from the 80s. And he's done a two hour, 20 minute long Q&A where he talks about the stuff he's been doing recently and stuff he's done in the past. And I actually watched all of this over the Christmas break and it was really interesting, but it's really long. Okay. And then we have good news from uh, his <laughs> his Lucasness, uh, DNSSEC Mastery, <laughs> second edition, creeping out. He writes a blog post. Uh, the ebook of the new edition of DNSSEC Mastery is starting to appear in stores. The print book will be delayed a couple of weeks as I need to redesign my print textbooks to compensate for changes in the business. Uh, uh, he will update the book's entry on his website with new stores as they list the book. Sponsors and patronizers should have already received their ebooks. Yep, that's the price you pay for, well, supporting the author. Uh, I'll be sending a print copies or sending the print copies as soon as possible if the chain allows it the best place to buy this book of course is from his own store so that the author directly gets the money without any intermediaries uh, i also have updated the total mastery bundle that contains all of the mastery titles to include this one and exclude the obsolete edition uh, he never expected anyone to buy that total mastery bundle but people do so he guesses he should keep it up to date yeah why not and congratulations michael on yet another book that is hopefully uh, popular with users running DNSSEC. Yeah, and if you uh, if you want to look at his total mastery bundle, it's one hundred and thirty five dollars. It includes thirteen books. He says buy thirteen books, get two free. So I guess it includes fifteen books. And uh, I'll, I'll read the list just so you can you can be tempted. As DNSSEC mastery, Ed mastery, FreeBSD mastery, and there's like five of these. So FreeBSD mastery, advanced ZFS, jails, storage essentials, speciality file systems, ZFS. Networking for System Administrators, PAM Mastery, RelayD and HTTP Mastery, SNMP Mastery, SSH Mastery, Pseudo Mastery, Tarsnet Mastery, and TLS Mastery. There's quite a lot of mastery in there. But only one Ed Mastery. Yeah, only one in the world, owned by the only person with that name. <laughs> well, not the only person, but <laughs> fitting that name uh, perfectly for this edition. Yeah, great. Have you done a backup today? Some people say, wow, no, I just do it when I have time. No, you shouldn't. You should do regular backups, and why not use a proper backup utility just for that? For example, Tarsnap, which is the online backup for the truly paranoid people out there, a secure, efficient online backup service for you, because what it does, it takes your files, does a bit of segmentation, deduplication to keep it uh, small enough, but then 
important part, before it backs them up into the cloud, it encrypts them locally and gives you the key, well, it let you generate the key, of course, and encrypts it locally. And once that data that you want to backup is encrypted, it will store that in the AWS cloud in this case, and no one there can just grab your files because they are just gibberish and don't uh, decrypt properly unless you have the key. And since you're the only person holding the keys to the castle, in this case, your backup, you are the person when the need for the restore arises, you can pull it down using the Tarsnap client, apply your uh, key that you generate and hopefully save somewhere else safely, and you, then you can decrypt your backups. So this is the nice way that Tarsnap provides for you. And if you need a bit of an explanation how that all works, there's a whole book about Tarsnap called Tarsnap Mastery over at Michael W. Lucas's uh, author page. In the nonfiction area, you will find the Tarsnap book that explains everything, how to run uh, Tarsnap, how to install it, and generate keys and do the backups properly. It's all in there. All right, let's jump right into our feedback and questions here. Uh, we got questions from people and want to have future ones. So send yours to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then this section won't be empty. The first that we have this week is Alec with a PlayStation and previously Linux question. Alec writes, I have a potentially dumb questions. No, they aren't dumb. They are only dumb if they don't get answered. Uh, the PlayStation runs on BSD, right? But wasn't there a Linux version for the PlayStation? And we have a note from the producer that we know by now very well. Uh, he writes, yes, there was. And obviously I have a copy of it. You can find more info here. He provides a Wikipedia link. Linux was also able to be installed on the PS3 and PS4 prior to a certain firmware version. And for the PS3, it provides a different link as well as for PS4, yet another one on medium.com. So that's extra information for you. Uh, he's unsure if any community people out there made installable FreeBSD images to use the PS3 and 4 as a FreeBSD desktop. The other guys can fill that info in if they know it. Ah, that's us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, he, he says, obviously, I have a copy of it. But the picture is JT sends me of his house. Yeah, yeah, he probably does have a copy of it. Yeah, so I want to uh, see this got, thing he's running. Got, he's got a lot of CDs. <laughs> Um, you could install FreeBSD on the PS3 in the other OS mode. I think it was one of the first Power um, 64 targets we had because it was quite early. Um, maybe it was, no, it was PowerPC 64. Um, I, I think it's still supported, but you have to be able to find a PlayStation 3 with other OS support, and they became really expensive. And they're probably and hard to get. Dif know. More difficult to get than the PS5 these days. Uh, I don't know. Like my PS3 Slim <laughs> won't do it. Otherwise, I'd, I'd, I'd have it. Rather than that, it just sits in a box and doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah, it'd be cool. It'd be cool to have FreeBSD on my PS on my PS3. It could be the most power intensive and slowest computer. <laughs> I have at the same time. And yeah, this involves uh, you know hacking in in certain ways, like circumventing some protection mechanisms to get actually the operating system to boot. Not so not when other OS was supported, but if the PS3 being updated past that, then I think you have to jailbreak. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you get not the, the, the gaming console, but some operating or more computer-like interface that you are familiar with. Okay, so yeah, I didn't know that um, about Linux being there. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> okay, next up we have a, a question from uh, Nelson and it's titled, Interesting Interview. But for some reason, I, I can't actually see all of the questions. So I'll read what I can. Um, all, 
In the uh, Redacted issue of Redacted, there is an interesting interview by Redacted with the developers of Berkeley DB that could make an interesting news item for you. The impact of that DB has been enormous. There is a nice quote about their talks with Google and Amazon, things that can that happen once in a million times, happen millions of times every day for us. And then there's a producer's note, which I'm sure JT doesn't mean us to read, but I'm going to read anyway, because, you know, um, producer's note, we're going to cover this in a future episode, but I wanted to go ahead and include this to stir up some Aww. interest. So if you're interested now, you might feel game. You have to wait a week to see that at least if it's in <laughs> the next wait, episode. Yeah. The temptation there. <laughs> it's not in the next episode. I've read the show notes. We're so, we're so bad people here. <laughs> uh, what have we done? Like and subscribe. Okay, so no, definitely thanks for the interview pointer, and we will look at that more details in a future episode. But but Benedict and I won't look at it because we don't know yeah, what we, it is. We are, we're, we're completely new to this. <laughs> but it's exciting for you then and for us as well. So we have to just keep a little bit more patient. And next is Oscar about OmniOS. Oscar writes, hi guys. First of all, thanks for a great show. You're welcome. I've recently started thinking about installing OmniOS on my file server. Please talk me out of it. I'm mainly curious about zones and running old ZFS versions. Any perks and cons? I mean, if you if you have good backups, you should never be worried about experimentation. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, but ever, you could lose all your files. Uh, the, yeah, the backed up files and all the important stuff you always wanted to I'd, keep. I'd definitely figure out how you can test your backups before you nuke your backups. And by that, I definitely do not mean just reinstall the server you have right now as is, hoping your backups will work, because that might just get rid of all your backups. But yeah, no, it, it sounds fun. I mean, you can try it in a virtual machine first if you just want to experiment with features. But yeah, this you, is not dangerous too much. You won't learn the day-to-day. -day. It has certainly nice features, like Zones SMF you mentioned, and older versions of ZFS for the history buffs out there. Yeah, I don't think we've ever tried to convince someone not to do something stupid like this. Yeah, experimenting <laughs> is part of our culture. Computers! Right? Safe experimenting, that is. <laughs> as, long as, you, as long as you have your backups, then what will go wrong? Yeah, that's why we have these. And right? you test and your backups every day, right? That, that your backups work. <laughs> yeah, we want that to happen. Okay, that pretty much uh, sums it all up for this week's episode. Uh, we have nothing more for you except uh, check out our Patreon one more time and then uh, wait for another episode for next week to come out with interesting stories in the BSD world. 